Just yesterday, I said these words again. There wasn't a class on this in seminary. In this particular instance, this being a slow running toilet. Where were you when I needed you, Jim? But there also were not classes on lots of other things in seminary, like the specifics of where to stand when you're officiating a wedding or revising bylaws as a congregation or writing grant applications or teaching confirmation class on and on, you get the point. Seminary is 90 plus hours of necessities for being a pastor with a few electives thrown in. One of the most unique electives I took was on church architecture. Now, but I'm gonna use it. I'm gonna use that class today. Now, you might think that this class was focused on things like how to manage a capital campaign and a building renovation, but it was in fact a worship arts elective. Now, you may be wondering, how is church architecture worship arts? Well, it turns out that when churches are built, a lot of intentionality goes into what the architecture is going to be saying theologically about God. If you think about it, different types of churches that you have maybe been in in your life, the high sweeping lines of a Gothic cathedral communicate something very different than the simple, smaller scale of a colonial New England sanctuary, right? Church architects often talk about these two things when they are imagining new spaces. They talk about eminence and transcendence. These are two different ways of understanding God's nature, and sometimes these two different things have been seen to be at odds. Those who experience God as eminent say that God is here with us, a part of our everyday physical and material world. God is present here and now, and we can see God right in front of us. On the other side, we have this idea that God is transcendent. God is always beyond, sometimes above, outside of our human experience. God is more than we will ever know and understand. God exists on another plane entirely. And those two competing ideas about God's nature get expressed in church architecture. In fact, maybe look around our sanctuary. You might see some things in here, I think, that evoke an imminent God, and maybe some other things that evoke a more transcendent God. I actually think our space is a little bit of a mix. God's imminence and transcendence both have a place in our tradition. Certainly, there are biblical stories that support both understandings of the holy. You can see this if you just look a little bit at the liturgical year, which starts back in Advent. The stories in the lectionary in Advent are like doom and gloom and apocalyptic end-of-world extravaganzas. God is mystical. God is all-powerful. God is above and beyond human understanding. But then we move into the Christmas season. And we sing songs like Love Came Down at Christmas, and we celebrate the birth of Emmanuel, who we proclaim to be God with us in the form of not just any human, but a very average baby born in a very humble setting. It's easy to see and feel the imminence of God in our stories about Jesus's birth. Then when we move through the season of Epiphany, 
We see Jesus doing really average, ordinary things. Jesus is reading scripture in a house of worship that he grew up in. He's being baptized by his cousin. He's going to a wedding. But even in these imminent everyday things, there is a glow of the holy about them. Jesus's scripture reading is infused with such power that people take notice. The heavens open and a mighty voice comes booming out of the sky when Jesus is baptized. And Jesus performs his first miracle at the wedding, turning water into wine. It seems like you could easily paint a picture of God whichever way you like, here and now, or above and beyond. And then now, here we are, just before the season of Lent begins, Transfiguration Sunday. Jesus goes up onto a mountain with three of his best friends. Now, if you are from Kansas like I am, then you know that mountains are like amazing, right? Because we don't have them here. There's just nothing quite like driving out across I-70 and you're like straining your eyes to try They're right over there, right? When you're going on I-70. And at first you think like, is it them? Are they there? Maybe that's just clouds. I'm not really sure. But then you get a little bit closer and a little bit closer and, and you know that they're really, they're really mountains. And you get a little bit closer and you're going up, your ears pop, right? And suddenly there you are, you're in them, you're around them and you marvel at the immensity of them. Mountains are what? Transcendent or imminent? Transcendent, right? They point our eyes up and beyond. And so we look to this mountain as Jesus and his friends scale it up, 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 up. Our eyes go until we see the four of them standing there and Jesus begins to pray. And as he does, as Brandy told the kids, he undergoes a transformation. In the Greek, it's a metamorphosis. We are told that he has changed completely into a new being. His face looks different. His clothes are glowing. And then suddenly we become aware that Elijah and Moses, the greatest of teachers and prophets, have joined them. Peter and his friends witness all of this. And as Moses and Elijah prepare to leave, Peter cries out, wait, this is really cool. Let's make three little houses, one for you, Jesus, and then one for Elijah and one for Moses, and we could all stay here. But it's not to be. The moment passes. A cloud descends onto the mountain, and the three friends are scared. And then that voice coming down from a cloud thing happens again and says, this is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. And then suddenly, Jesus is there alone. And we are told the disciples told no one what had happened to them. I mean, which you can kind of understand, right? Because what would people think if you told them the story? It is a magnificently transcendent sort of moment. It is just what you would expect to happen on top of a mountain. But this is not the end of the story. Because what happens next is that they come down off of the mountain. And the next scene, as we keep going in the Gospel of Luke, is down in the valley. So let's pause for just a minute and take this journey with them. Now, maybe you have never stood on top of a mountain, but we've all been up in a high place in nature, I'm sure. Maybe it was just on the top of the radio tower hill at Kanza, or maybe you 
um, have been sitting on top of a barn, or even just think about being in an airplane and looking out. Remember what it feels like when you're up in that high place to have that sense of spaciousness, like everything below you looks really different and everything just kind of stretches out and on and on. That's where we are. But now we descend with Jesus down into the valley and our feet are planted back on the ground and we are told that a great crowd has come to meet us and people are pressing in on all sides. They've come to see Jesus and that sense of spaciousness that we had a moment ago is totally gone. We are back in the thick of the seeming scarcity of everyday life. There's not enough time. There's not enough money. There's not enough food. There's not enough love to go around. And people here are desperate. One of the desperate one cries out above the noise of the crowd, teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He is my only child. And things in this moment do not feel so transcendent anymore. This is not a mountaintop moment. And it's hard for us at this point to even remember what it felt like way up there in the cool, fresh mountaintop air where Jesus was shining and sparkling. But now down here in the valley, there is only desperation as the child is suffering immense pain. And some of us, no doubt, avert our eyes. We wonder if maybe there's a place that we could escape. We feel powerless. But this man continues. He says, I begged your followers to help me, but they could not. Now, we like to think sometimes that we're not that much like the disciples because the disciples are sometimes a little bit clueless and they're always messing up. But really, have we modern disciples fared any better with the things in our world that continue to harm children? We live in a world where children die every day of curable ailments because they can't access health care. We live in a world where children are poisoned by their own water due to the recklessness of elected officials, where children are the victims of violence, where children suffer the consequences of climate change. We have our own demons that we have not yet exercised, don't we? And so Jesus, after chastising his followers a little bit, does what he almost always does. He heals. He takes the boy into his arms. We're told that he heals him and then he returns him to his father. And the story ends well, despite Jesus's followers' inability to get it. So God flashes on a mountain and a voice booms from heaven declaring the importance of Jesus. And God dwells among the crowds in the valley bringing a healing salve to those who need it most. And at this point in the story, you might be wondering, well, which is it? Is God up there or is God down here? Does God live up there on the mountains or down here in the valleys? Yes. The answer is yes. 
And so as we move together into the season of Lent, we too have a difficult journey ahead of us. The days may be growing longer, but the work of Lent is not necessarily easy. We are called to recommit ourselves to spiritual practices that will deepen and lengthen our connection to the Holy One. During this season, we will be asked to bear witness once again to the most cruel and callous behavior of humans. As we go into the season of Lent, it seems to me that we would do well to pay careful attention to the very last line in this long passage. But Jesus healed the boy and gave him back to his father, and all were astounded by the greatness, magnificence, majesty of God. And so it is my prayer for you as we enter this season of Lent that you would be astounded. For we are held in love by the one who is somehow both here and now and above and beyond. The God of both mountains and valleys. Thanks be to God.